you have your Bibles, take them and turn, please, to one of the easiest places in the whole Bible to find, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, and verse 1 and 2, I'm going to read just the first two verses and uh, spend a little bit more time on the first uh, uh, verse, and then we'll pick up the pace, I think, as we head into the next number of weeks. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's difficult to live in this world and to not um, begin to think, why is there something and not nothing? I think that's part of what occupies a lot of our time when we have spare time or we're out in the woods is why is there something and not nothing? The answer from God and from scriptures of why there is something and not, not nothing is found in the first verse as we've read it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That verse teaches us that there was an absolute beginning of everything, of space, time, energy, and matter. The concept of an absolute beginning of all things out of nothing by an eternally existent God is, at the first place, not an easy thing to grasp. And yet, it's biblical revelation to us. As we looked at last week, we think about a revelation that comes to us in two ways. One is through general revelation. General revelation is unique. It's, it's uh, specifically or generally focused on telling us about the glory of God. General revelation is, is available to all humanity that was ever born, ever is, and ever will be. General revelation is a revelation that comes to us through the world, and it's a revelation of God. And as we look at general revelation, it's enough to tell us about the fact that there must be a powerful being that created this world, tell us a little bit about him, but not tell us how to enter into a relationship with him or tell us why he created this world or any of those sorts of things. And so there are some limitations. General revelation in and of itself is not enough to tell us about why there is something and not nothing. And that's why we have special revelation. That's why we have the Word of God. And that is what we mean when I say special revelation. Special revelation is now God's word to us, his declaration to us of why there is something and not nothing. It's a revelation to us about the character of God. It's a revelation to us about his nature, about his works. And as I say, for our understanding for the next few weeks that are ahead of us, as it relates to why there is something and not nothing. As Christians, we do believe that the Bible is truth revealed to us by God who is the true creator of the universe. And it's the basic foundation of all general Christianity is the fact that God has spoken to us and God has told us how this world has come into being. We need special revelation in order to understand general revelation. Do you understand that? We need the word of God to tell us about why, what we see around us, to interpret what we see around us. We get into all kinds of trouble when we try and understand the world in which we live and set aside the God who made the world in which we live. And we get into all kinds of trouble when we think that there is a spiritual reality somewhere or a scientific authority somewhere 
that can speak more authoritatively than the scriptures about why there is something and not nothing. What the scripture is, is God's eyewitness account of how it all started. There was nobody else here when God created the world. There was nobody else here when in the beginning happened. So when it deals with the origins of the universe, all that science and historical science can offer us is conjecture because science deals with what can be observed and reproduced by experimentation. The origin of life, the beginning of life, can neither be observed nor reproduced in any laboratory. And so when we come to the word of God, we have the word of God and his declaration of how everything came into being. One of the primary or opposing views of the biblical view of creation is scientific naturalism. It's the dominant view in a world in which we live now. It expresses itself through evolution. It's the view that every law or every force operating in the universe is natural rather than moral, spiritual, or supernatural. In other words, scientific naturalism is inherently anti-theistic, rejects the very concept of a personal God. Its basic presupposition is the rejection of everything that is supernatural. Two very opposing views of how the world came to be. Carl Sagan is perhaps the most eloquent um, proponent of scientific naturalism, certainly the most popular proponent of it. And underlying everything that he taught was the firm explanation that everything in the universe has a natural cause and a natural explanation. His most popular aphorism was this, the cosmos is all that there is or ever was or ever will be. That's the foundational presupposition of Carl Sagan's view of how the universe came into be. In fact, it never came into be. It was eternally existent. Two things about that, first of all, at least in my own thinking, is that's not a scientific conclusion. It's an expression of naturalistic faith, but it's not a scientific conclusion because it can't be reproduced. But more importantly... Does that aphorism ring a bell in your head? When you hear him say that the cosmos is all that there is or ever was or ever will be, does another bell go off in your head? What about Revelation chapter four, verse eight? And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. So is matter eternally existent or is God eternally existent? Those are two contrary choices. This Friday, as I was having a really brief conversation with Pastor Barry in the office, we both happened to be here doing uh, different things on Friday. And I just happened to pop my head into his office and we had a conversation that literally maybe lasted five, 10 minutes at the most. And something just happened, clicked in my head out of that conversation. It's, 
It was stuff that, that I had knew, but uh, Pastor Barry articulated it to me in a saying that I had also heard, but it just all came together for me in just a, a couple of seconds. And it's been dominating my thinking and my lack of sleeping for the last little while. And it's a phrase by Augustine, which says, I believe in order to understand. Think that one through. I'm not going to take the time to explain it because it just explodes when you start to work your way through Scripture. The opposite way of approaching that is, I understand in order to believe. I am convinced, and my approach is that I believe in order to understand. And part of that is rooted in, in one of the most clear statements that we have in Proverbs by, by, written by Solomon. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you understand what he's saying there? You start with God. You start with God and then with an understanding and a belief and acceptance of God, by faith you believe in that. The fear of the Lord, I believe that he exists. I believe that he has expressed himself. I believe that he has given his word to me. And then out of that comes understanding and wisdom in all areas of life. And that's how I approach the word of God and even these first chapters of Genesis. I believe what do I believe? I believe by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen has been made from things that are not visible. That's, that's where I start. I believe the word of God. I believe what God tells me. In the beginning, God created. In other words, the place to begin to start making sense of the world in which we live is to start with God. To start with the glory of God that's revealed through generation, uh, uh, general revelation. To start with the word of God, the specific revelation in which God tells us how he did it and why he did it. So as we come then to these first few words in the Bible, the first thing that I just have been wrestling with in my own head is just this unfathomable declaration. In the beginning, God. And as I said last week, I am convinced that Genesis 1 to 3, and in fact, Genesis 1 to 11, ought to be taken at face value as divinely revealed history of creation. God's revelation to us, God's telling us how this universe and this world that we inhabit came to exist. I don't know if there's four more explosive words than in the beginning, God. They're just mind-boggling to start thinking them through. Their questions just explode in one's mind as, as one wrestles with those words. In the beginning, God. Here we learn who, what, when, how of this universe and the world in which we live. I think we pointed out last week and uh, hasn't changed from last week to this week that left to ourselves, apart from special revelation, we would never come up with in the beginning God. Just look at the confusion that has existed in our world for thousands of years. We looked at some of the, or at least mentioned the Babylonian myths, the Egyptian myths, the Canaanite myths. 
We come into our own world and time now and look at how those who have no belief in God whatsoever describe how this world came into being and have tried to explain the presence of time and space and matter as they've tried to answer the question, why is there something? Where does this something come from? But here in these first two verses of the Bible, the Bible tells us about God. In the beginning, God. They tell us about the universe created the heavens and the earth. Those two words, that phrase put together is a phrase throughout the Bible that means everything that exists. The heavens above, the world that we inhabit, everything that exists, the heavens and the earth. And they tell us about the world. It says, and the earth was without form and void. It's noteworthy, and you can work this out in your own heads a little bit. It's noteworthy how quickly we get from the eternal God to the creation of the heavens and the earth to the world. It's like God skips just massive questions that we might have, the revelation of God, and he gets to the world. And as we will see in the next little while, that not only do we quickly get to the world, but we get to humankind that God created. In other words, there is a sense in which humankind is the focal point of God's creation. That in itself is contrary to the cosmologies of the world. Humankind is just a chance happening. Humankind is just a purposeless result of an evolutionary process that lasted billions of years versus the biblical account that drills down quickly to the fact that in everything that God has made, in all that God has made, in this world in which God has made, that on that world, he has made humans, men and women. He gets from the creation well, from the beginning of time, space, matter to the world, to Adam and Eve in an economy of words. And I think this is why the psalmist might have said in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hand and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the seas. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. What is man that you have placed him at the height of your creation? Think about this for a moment. I think this is really helpful. What is the scripture telling us by quickly drilling down to the creation of Adam and Eve and by the psalmist telling us we have this extraordinary place in the universe and the world? The world tells us you don't matter. The world tells us you're expendable. The world tells us if we don't want a little baby, let's kill it. 
If we don't want our seniors living too long, let's kill them. The world tells us there's no real purpose for humankind on this earth. We're just actually the the, the product of a long evolutionary process and who knows what will happen when we're done there. Or the Bible says, no, no. You are created by God. You are the focal point of his creation. It infuses your life with meaning and with purpose and with value. You are not here by chance loved ones. You are here by the explicit, expressed determination of God to create you in his image. As we think this through, and it's a little bit of a distraction in my head, but as we think this through a little bit, in the beginning, God, God is telling us something about himself in relation to the universe and the world in which we live. This is a statement about the existence of God, first and foremost. God is real. In the beginning, not matter. In the beginning, not nothing. But in the beginning, God. Before there was anything, there was God. It's telling us about the nature of God and the person of God. And what it's, I think, leading us to do is as we look at this world and as we wonder about our place in this world and we wonder why there's something and not nothing, look up first. Look up. Look outside of yourself. God dominates the first chapter of Genesis. There's a particular name of God that's used in Genesis 1, Elohim. By my count, it's used 35 times. You cannot miss the focus that is placed on God. It is intentional and it is purposeful. And in fact, one of the interesting things, and we'll come to this when we get to verse 27 of chapter 1, The word Elohim for God is plural, but it's always used to act upon singular verbs. So God, the plural God, it's telling us something about the nature of God already, or I think it's hinting towards that at least. There's plurality within God. This God that has existed before all times has existed in the person of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that God created this world. telling us that God is outside of creation. He is apart from creation. Elohim means strength and might. It means one who is transcendent, one who is above. And this one verse then begins by stating that God has always existed and it sets himself apart from creation. Creation has a beginning. God has no beginning. Time, space, matter, and every other God had a beginning. Before anything, God was. This biblical account that we have here before us declares that the God of Israel, the covenant God of the people, our God, is the creator of all that exists. And the existence of all things is due to his own determined will. It's been the foundational belief of God's people down through the ages that God is a sovereign God, that he is above nature, that he is beyond nature. He is not part of the process. He is not part of the matter. God is eternal. Psalm 90, verse 2. Psalmist there says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. In other words, before there was anything, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God. 
I know how hard that is to wrestle that through. Everything we know in this world has a beginning, except God. He has no beginning and he has no end. Deuteronomy 33, 27, the eternal God is your dwelling place and, and underneath him are the everlasting arms. 1 Timothy 1:17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, God only wise. Isaiah says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. Wow, God inhabits eternity. God of wonders, beyond all majesty. And God was perfectly content and sufficient in himself. In the Trinity, in the union of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We get a sense of this when we know that um, there's another place which talks about beginnings, and it's John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and through him all things are created. What's that saying? That verse is predating creation. It's predating Genesis chapter 1. It's telling us that the Son, Jesus Christ, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, that the Son, Jesus Christ, is eternally existent as well. Before there was anything, he existed. And in fact, this world was made through him, and without him was not anything made. So these verses in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, predate creation as well. But at some point, God in the eternal counsel of his will decided to create this universe and all that is in it, this world, and to populate it. But he didn't just do this randomly. There was a plan of God before even the creation of this world. And you say, well, really? Yes, really. Because it says in a number of places in the Bible that, that the names of those who, who would be the children of God were written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. When? Before the foundation of the world. And what does Peter say about Christ? That he was the lamb slain. When? Before the foundation of the world. And so the creation of this universe, the creation of this world was purposeful. There is a story behind creation. There is a linear reality behind creation. It's not just, well, let's make something and see what happens. Let's, it's, there is make something because there is a goal, there is a purpose, there is an end in mind. And what is that goal? What is the purpose of creation? You don't just start at the beginning, you gotta start at the end. And that's why the, the, the revelation of God about how this world began is so different from the, the, the attempts of man without God to decide how this world came into being. Because God tells us that the plan in his creation was multiple, but one of it, the reasons that he created this world was to display his glory. The heavens display the glory of God. It was a way in which God could show us his glory and his might and his power. The very existence of evil displays the righteous work of God, and we'll talk about that at some point. The riches of his grace and salvation, which were named before the foundation of the world, were part of his plan in creating this world because it says that according to the divine foreknowledge and predetermination of God, that Christ was killed. It's not an accident. The world is going somewhere. It was always meant to go somewhere. And in fact, at the conclusion of this world, God will have a bride for his, wife, for his son. His plan is to display his righteousness and his glory and his might and his power and his justice and his holiness. 
God created this world with a purpose in mind. The second thing that strikes me is it's a little bit of a startling declaration. We've already mentioned a little bit about the, the cultural realities of the worlds in which we inhabit and have inhabited in all time. I mentioned last week that um, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, apart from the part about his death. Um, but Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And he wrote them somewhere between the Exodus, 445 B.C., and his death around 1405 B.C. And it was a counter to the experience of the people of Israel in Egypt. Do you understand that? The, the people of Egypt had their own view of the world and how it came into being and how we worship. And as the people were coalescing now and gathered as the people of God, redeemed by God, God says, okay, I need to reveal to you now things about the world. They had just come out of this oppressive polytheism of, the, of Egypt, all its temples and its pyramids with its solar and its lunar gods. In Egypt, these pagan mythologies had opposed Israel's monotheism already to that point. In opposition to a single creator, they had elaborate myths and a huge pantheism uh, which, which talked about the way in which the gods had had love affairs and reproduced among themselves. And there was warfare amongst the gods of those heavens which marked out the heavens and the earth. The priests would annually mine skits and plays about their myths, hoping that they could reenact them. And by doing that, they would create life. Add to this now that the people of Israel are about to enter into Canaan, a, a godless group of people who, who, who served all kinds of idols, who had all kinds of different myths about how the world came into being. And so as these people are leaving Egypt and about to enter into Canaan, God says, okay, now is the time to tell you about how this world came into being. It's no different from the world in which we live today. There's all different views. Um, I've already mentioned one, scientific naturalism, and I mention that because it's the dominant view. It believes that matter is all that there is. It believes that matter is eternal. There's modern religions of our day. Mormonism and Hinduism has millions of gods. Key voices in our world today mock the biblical view of God who created the heavens and the earth. Loved ones, do you think it's any more acceptable today to believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth than it was for the Israelites 3,000 years ago? We need to hear this. We need to reflect on it. We need to embrace it. We need to believe it. To believe that God created all there is out of nothing. It's my conviction I was reading, just so you know, it's not just my conviction, it's Jesus's conviction. If you're following along in the 10 by 5 by 5 reading plan, and it's never too late to join, you can join in any time, but you would have read last week, sometime last week, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 has this fascinating discussion between the Pharisees and Jesus about divorce and remarriage. And they had a question to Jesus. Why did Moses allow remarriage or divorce. And Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart. But he said, it was not always like that. And this is his response. 
But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying creation began. It had a starting point. And at the very beginning was male and female, not separated by billions of years, not the product of years and years of evolution. But when creation began, there was male and female. He's tying the two closely together. At the beginning of creation, when God made Adam and Eve, Jesus believed in creation out of nothing. In the beginning, God created in a particular point in eternity. The immortal God brought everything that we know and don't know into existence. Nothing existed before God created it and spoke it into existence. In the beginning, there was absolutely nothing except the one true triune God. In the beginning, there was nothing until God acted and spoke and then there was something. That's the natural sense of Genesis 1.1. Face value. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Create, that's a word that's only used of God's action. It's it's not applied to humans to bring anything out of nothing in anywhere else in the Bible. Creation is an act of God. And it means to bring something that into nothing that was, or bring something into, bring into existence something that was non-existent before. To create out of nothing. We create out of something. Everything we make, everything we build, we never do it out of nothing. We make things, we form things, but we don't create anything. Again, I've said it, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God created without pre-existing material. What we see and observe and feel came from things that did not exist until God spoke them into existence. The psalmist writes, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. Some of you may recall the story of Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, Abraham and Sarah. They were unable to have children. She was barren. They were old. They still were unable to have children. Yet God says, I will give you a child. This is Paul's recounting of that in Romans chapter 4, 17. I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. God calls into existence things that do not exist. This stretches our minds beyond human experience. But if it's true, wouldn't we expect to find evidence in the world in which we live? And we do. I can just give you three briefly, just so you can think about them. We see it in the ever-expanding universe. Our universe is expanding, and it's expanding at an accelerating rate. And they say it had to start somewhere. That that beginning of the expansion had to have a beginning. We see it in the first and second law of thermodynamics, which also demand that there must have been a beginning somewhere. We see it in the 
in the, 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 the complexity of even the most simple things that are that make it impossible to think of them coming together gradually over time. There are in cells themselves a complexity with dozens and even hundreds of precisely tailored parts which rule out a gradual evolution. There's too many things that, 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 that happen that need to go together in order for something to function to say that they gradually happened one at a time. And so even scientists wrestle with the reality that they must have been put together quickly and suddenly. You have to understand too, and there are some who try and interpret Genesis 1.1 and 1.2 as though matter was eternally existent. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, that's messing with language. It's not supported in the text. But what they're trying to say is that matter is eternally existence, and God just took that eternally existent matter and made it into the universe and the world in which we live. That's not what Genesis 1-1 says or the rest of the Bible affirms. God created time, space, energy, and matter. He brought it into existence in an orderly, predictable, and dependable pattern. He sets a rhythm for nature in the world in which we live. Creation is ordered by God's creative word as our lives are ordered by God's created word. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. There's an order behind creation that is intended to order our lives as well. The most shocking part of Genesis 1, 1, I guess, is also the most useful to me. It forces me to ask if God is free to be who he is, or do I try and make him my prisoner, subject to what I think he should be, subject to how I think he should act? A Christian must keep asking themselves, Am I worshiping the God of the Bible or only God as I wish to think of him? That really matters. Am I, wishing, am I worshiping the God who reveals himself to me in the Bible or am I worshiping a God who I want him to be a certain way or act in a certain way? And finally, two practical declarations. They can be covered off quickly. Such a verse, like verse one, just shatters the God in the box theory. God fits in none of our boxes. God cannot be defined by any structure that I give him. He cannot be housed and contained in anything that I create or want to make. 
He's the maker of this universe. He's the maker of this world and all that's in it. He doesn't need my help. He doesn't need me to give him anything. I can't confine him. I can't restrict him. He existed before there was anything. And because there's something, he brought it into being. I can't box him in. And that's a wonderful, freeing thing. And secondly, God owns it all. This is, this is just a practical thing for you and I to think through. God has ownership rights over everything and everyone. Why? Because he made everything and everyone. What about the sea and the dry land? Psalm 95.3, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. <laughs> the heights of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands form the dry land. If you make something, it's yours. You go, some of you will go for a walk along the water and you look at the sea and say, oh, is that the government's? No, it's God's. He made it and everything that's in it. What about humankind? Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Your work has no handles. God, you didn't make me right. He can make me however he wants. And by the way, he's made you and I perfect. Are there any exceptions? Psalm 146, verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Why? Why, why are we so fortunate? as God's people, to have him as our father. Because he made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. That is pretty amazing. That the God whom we call father is the maker of everything. Is there anything that isn't God's? Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, and the earth, and all that is in it. Just the land or everything else. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are to be exalted as head above all. Both riches and honors come from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Why does it all belong to God? The earth is the Lord's and its fullness thereof. The world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This is helpful to understand that God owns it all. He will look after it. But we own nothing. We are in complete dependence upon God. Everything that we earn, everything that we own is God's. And what it does is it, derive, it drives us to humility. It drives us to our knees before God. It puts us in a place of defend, dependence. It puts us in a place of awe. It puts us in a realization that there is nothing that God cannot provide for me. There is no need that God cannot meet. Father, I pray that as we 
think about this world and this universe in which we live. May we start with, I believe, and through believing come to understanding. Father, that needs to be our starting presupposition is that you exist. And from it, it just begins to make sense as we look at things, as we look at the discoveries in the world around us, as we look at the formation in the rocks, as we look at the animals that you have made, as we look at this world and the universe that we live in, it makes sense to bring it all back to our understanding that you exist. So Father, would you help us in our wrestlings today and this week as we drive ourselves back to your word for confirmation, for affirmation, for um, building faith in us. Father, I thank you for your world because it does show us that we can't contain you. You existed before there was anything. The heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain you. That's a wonderful but awe-inspiring reality. And Father, can you remind us that there's nothing that we will ever need to go without because you own everything and you are able to supply all of our needs. Help us to worship you and be in awe of you, God of wonders, beyond all majesty. In Christ's name we pray, amen.